0: Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Emma Copley Eisenberg, whose debut book, The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, is out now from Hachette. Emma's work has appeared in Granta, McSweeney's, VQR, Tin House, and The New Republic, among other outlets. It has been recognized by the Malay Colony, the Helene Wurlitzer Foundation, the Elizabeth George Foundation, Lambda Literary, and Long Best Crime Reporting. She lives in Philadelphia, where she directs Blue Stoop, a hub for the literary arts. The third Rainbow Girl contains many stories. The central one is the 1980 murders of Nancy Santamero and Vicki Durian, two hitchhiking women who were killed in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, on their way to a nearby festival called the Rainbow Gathering. There is also the story of Elizabeth Jandro, a woman who had been traveling with them shortly before their deaths. There is the story of how these events reverberated through Pocahontas County for years, amongst criminal trials and conflicting theories and accusations. And there is also Emma's story, of coming to Pocahontas County as a young volunteer some 30 years after the killings, and becoming fixated on the case. Interwoven, these narratives interrogate similar questions, about truth, power, class, and gender, from different but complementary angles. Before I knew all that, though, I have to confess, I was trepidatious of Emma's book. Outsider narratives of my home state, and of Appalachia in general, tend to go a specific, often reductive way. But Emma achieves the opposite, writing into the many complexities and contradictions in a way that leaves the story complicated, as stories are, without sacrificing narrative momentum. We talk here about that more spacious approach to storytelling, what Ursula K. Le Guin called the carrier bag theory, and its ability to leave more room for nuance. The book is, in many ways, a story about stories how we tell them to ourselves and others, how we trust some but not others, how we determine which ones feel true. So Emma and I spend some time here too on the questions raised by these narratives, questions about queerness, gender, identity, and truth. We talk about how Emma structured a book with so many stories, plus how she made sense of the extensive research she had amassed. At $1 per page, a copy of the trial transcript costs $7,000 to obtain. In our bonus segment, available exclusively to Patreon subscribers, we talk about coping with the mental and emotional toll of writing about trauma. Bonus segments are Patreon exclusives and are available for $2 a month at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast.
1: I was trying to take the reader on a journey of look how many truths there are, rather than like a more traditional, let me unfold a master narrative for you.
0: I kind of want to start by asking you about your sort of, understanding of West Virginia of Appalachia and how that maybe has changed over time, you know, and you you mentioned this in the book and in conversations that I've read with you that um, you know, this is a place that that people can kind of be on edge because we get misrepresented a lot and we get these sort of standard media stories. And and so mm-hmm. I admit, I was like, okay, I, I hope this is going to go well. But then immediately <laughs> I was immediately like, oh she's done the right homework. And like when you look at the further reading, I was just like, I'm not, this is going to be fine. Um, oh, and okay. and talking m- about the idea of like colonialism in Appalachia, I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, that's such a vast topic, but like, yeah. I imagine that what drew you to the place and then what mm-hmm. kind of kept drawing you back maybe are, are two slightly different things.
1: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. There's like the logistical and the intellectual and the emotional. Yeah. So I suppose logistically, I first came to Pocahontas County as a summer intern while I was in college. My college has a partnership with this cool local nonprofit that serves teenage girls in southeastern West Virginia. And I really knew nothing about the place. Definitely a New York City, northeastern kid, like no way around that truth um urban kid and um I just got this really beautiful and deep education that summer essentially education that would continue but that summer I was really exposed to um it was almost like an Appalachian studies 101 course like college level course that they conducted for us and I learned kind of like basic uh idea which I know there's lots of additional scholarship of people that don't Absolutely agree with this idea, but this idea of Appalachia as like a domestic colony absolutely has been extracted from and exploited both um, uh, economically and then also sort of intellectually, like this idea of people coming in and taking stories and then misrepresenting the place in popular culture, you know, really through the 20th century. And then I returned once I'd graduated from college in 2009, but because of the recession and complicated forces and the ways that Appalachian nonprofits have been supported over the years by federal money to some extent. Um, technically, I was a member of AmeriCorps VISTA or Volunteers in Service to America, which I would later learn has its own sort of long and complicated history, both in Appalachia, but in specifically in, in Southeast West Virginia, where I was living. And then, yes, I think that... Um, It's difficult to describe, even though I wrote a whole book about it, what kept bringing me back to the place. But I think as I lived there and formed relationships with people and learned more about the community and became more part of the community, it really felt to me like um, this particular place encompassed a lot of really rich and fascinating contradictions and truths about the ways to hold um, conflicting ideas and conflicting histories and conflicting populations, you know, to hold space for all of that in a single community that really kind of obsessed me and and drew me in and made me feel like this was a really special, unique place. Um, And then also just like the sheer magnitude and beauty of the land, there's a very special and different relationship, I think, between people and the land than there is in other places, which I admired a lot. So some combination of all those factors, and then also Later, um, you know, learning about this crime that happened a long time ago in the county in 1980, but it certainly felt like a lot of things that I was seeing in terms of um, class dynamics, gender dynamics, um, questions about masculinity and violence had played out in this county before through this crime. And I became you know, really interested and dedicated to learning more about those events as a way to also understand the place now. Right. Yeah. And I definitely want to
0: dig into a lot of what you just mentioned um, over the course of our conversation. But yeah, I, I think it's something that you do really well. I mean, everything you just said, it is very complicated and conflicting in your relationship with the place you know, your relationship to the place mm-hmm. feels very Appalachian to me, actually, or at least like true to my Appalachian experience. <laughs> and, and it's funny, you know, I was I was yeah. talking to a friend of mine who's in Charleston, actually, and and we were talking about this idea of the representation of Appalachian identity within Appalachia and how that can be very problematic mm-hmm. too, and can be a little too kind of um, narrow sometimes, or at least what gets what gets kind of recirculated the most can be this very restricting idea of what it means to be from this place. And, and for a lot of people, it means not even really Mm. caring about being, you know, the place doesn't necessarily always have that, that sort of central tug at their identity, like it like it does for a lot of us. So yeah, for sure. But we were talking about how really helpful it is to actually have a perspective like yours, like somebody to kind Mm. of Come in and and look at it for what it is, like tenderly but lucidly, and and really call mm. call it what it is and see, you know what in in the good and the bad. Thank you. That's
1: meaningful.
0: I thought that was something that you conveyed really well, both in your in the memoir sections and in the kind of other pieces about about the case. This idea of of everybody having these relationships to this place that kind of you know feed and hurt them at the same time.
1: Totally. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's very meaningful to me and I think of course I was trying to make it very clear that I'm not originally from the place um and that my perspective is um is different and is not trying to take up that space but is unique and I think there are actually a lot of people like me in some ways or people that are part of sort of an Appalachian diaspora of not being quite from not being quite away wanting to be there needing to be away this constant interplay between going home and leaving or people who have also, you know, moved into the place and fell in love with it and stayed. And then are you from there? Are you not? In the sense of just, right, there's a vast, like, nuance and spectrum of what it means to be from or not from. Um, and I'm certainly on the on the not from side of things. I'm trying to sort of speak alongside the conversation of people that are from rather than, you know, take up that middle space. So there's this book, um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong that just came out. That, I'm
0: very excited to read oh, it I haven't read it yet but so
1: good and I, it just really like blew my mind and she she's that idea of speaking alongside comes from her this idea of um mm. in, of, from that book that hopefully most productive way to to speak into a conversation of, about an identity that is not yours um it's just to speak alongside uh, to participate hopefully but in a way that is you know Clear about the narrowness of one's own perspective, um, so that's meaningful to me. Thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course, and I and I love that idea. Yeah, and I think um, I would love to ask you practically how this comes out. Although I'm not sure if it's something that you can really like think about having done consciously, but it does now that we're <laughs> we're talking about it. You know, I think a thing that really sets the way that you're writing about it apart is there's no. Um, you very much avoid this posture of, of translating or this posture of kind of like explaining like, well, here are these people in this way that can kind of feel, you know, can, can increase that divide and, and the way that, um, the place can then come off as like very provincial, you know, not that it's not that there aren't provincial elements of it or of any place, but you know what I mean? There's, there's a certain, um, there's a certain stance or a certain posture or attitude that you take that, that really dissipates that idea.
1: Oh, thank you. I was trying and I don't know. And of course there's a variety of responses and everyone's responses are valid, but I think in um, like the logistical choices, I really tried like I tried to use words like here instead of there when I was talking about the place, um, you know, and I tried to start the book uh, in Pocahontas County uh, except for like this sort of list that I create that uh, is hopefully a way to like make sure that the reader doesn't think it's like a traditional true crime book, but I wanted, I wrestled a lot. My other and I did with what should chapter one be, you know, and and I felt it was really important to start it in Pocahontas County, not coming into it, not, traveling into it, but, you know, already there. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and I had read a conversation with you. I forget where, but I'll, I'll find it and, and link to it on the show page that um, where you talk about also wanting to avoid the the trope of starting with the dead body and the, and just immediate. And, mm-hmm. and this is something else that, you know, it's a bit of a tangent from the place conversation, but I think another thing the book does really well is really scrutinize the dead girl phenomenon mm-hmm. and and what and and does kind of play with like what not play within it in a cavalier way but you know mm-hmm. challenges like what what somebody might want out of a true crime book you know
1: yeah yeah I hope so that was definitely part of the project
0: you mentioned that list that you that you start with and it is a very it's a very arresting way to open and it really sets the very particular tone of it can you explain to to folks Sort of what what that list was about and kind of the purpose that it served to you in the narrative.
1: Oh, totally yes. It's called true things. It's pretty much the first thing you see when you open the book, except for um, some thoughts about research and truth. You know, just light topics. But um, <laughs> when you open the book, yes, it starts with this section that is essentially a list. It's an, it's what I tried to make as an accounting of what I really knew to be true because this case and this place and my relationship to the place and just like all of these of three strands that I'm trying to hold throughout the book, like have so much debate and contradiction and so many conflicting truths. I mean, in terms of just the sort of logistics and facts of the murder case and investigation that I include in the book, there's just so many versions of what happened. So many people's descriptions conflict with other people's descriptions and the question of what is truth what is a fact what is journalism like these are things that I really wanted to put like at the center of the narrative more so maybe than anything else so I wanted to really open the book with something that would highlight this idea of of truth and also be a little bit of like a north star both for me as a writer and hopefully for readers too of like this is the kind of book I'm getting myself into. There's no spoilers in the book to the great like chagrin of, I think, a lot of true crime fans. I put all the information about the case really up front in that true things list because it felt really important to me to put the facts up front and then let their meaning be the more expansive subject matter. I knew that I didn't want to write a book that was like a whodunit. I knew that I didn't want to write a book that was just like a replaying of events and and a, an a objectifying look at, at bodies and criminals. I wanted to ask the questions more about like, what do these events mean and why did they happen? And how can we sort of think about making them happen never again? So that list was one of the last things I wrote before we sold the book. Um, sold the book in 2017 that had been working on it for about four years before that. So there was just so many times I, thought I knew what the book was about and then I would change my mind because I talked to someone or I read something and then this two things list was basically the end of my thinking in that four years about what the book was so it was a way to kind of really teach myself all over again what I was writing about when I went into that phase of okay I have sold the book and now I have to you know really make some structural decisions it was I think it's like a structural map of the book if you will
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so true how you can, you can spend so much time of active thinking and writing and working having no idea what it's actually about. Not at all. Yeah. I just was like applying for like a fellowship thing. And I, and I looked at this old application and the questions that I had answered. And I was like, Oh, this isn't what my projects about at all. And it was just from like a year ago, but it changed so dramatically. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. And I kept turning in drafts to my agent and she kept being like, nope, you don't know what you're doing. And I was like, but I totally do. I totally do. And she was like, nope, nope, nope. And then I wrote two things. I actually wrote it in Oconness County um, when I was back there for a beautiful weekend and uh, wrote that list and showed it to her. And she was like, oh, okay. You know what it's about now. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I would love to ask you about one thing in particular, which really stood out to me. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's the true thing number eight, uh, when you talk about, you know, though, though you were there to work with these girls, you were closest mostly to men and you say, you're right. I existed in a relationship with them essentially as a friend and neighbor and fellow researcher looking into the word alive. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that, that aliveness
1: search? Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. Thanks for asking about number eight. That's a that's a juicy one.
0: We're gonna talk a lot about
1: like those ideas. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Yes, I think that essentially that contradiction between I was brought to this place, employed to work with young women, filling um, it tips, the nonprofit use that we hear a lot is you know empower, and I think you know that that organization does do that to a great extent. You know, on a daily basis, it provides uh, an education for young people about their place where they live, you know, the ecology of the state, the history of the region, um, jo- jobs, college, like so many important things, um, which are really, I'm so glad they exist. And also, though, I noticed that the people that indeed I ended up spending most of my time with were guys in their 20s, mostly, even early 30s. Almost all of them worked, you know, with their bodies, like doing labor that was physically demanding, uh, difficult on the health, and people that chose mostly to stay in the county after, like, graduating high school and whatnot. Um, A lot of the young women that I worked with at this uh, organization for girls, you know, if if they were doing well in school, uh, a lot of them did go to college, a lot of them left the state. You know, some of them would come back, and, of course, the ties are are deep, but it did feel to me like there was a gender dynamic there was kind of a way for for a path that that was legible for stay in the county, and it was much more difficult, I thought, for women and girls to stay. Uh, those were like the people who were my age um, in in Pelton County. Mostly were were men, and so um, yeah, we hung out and we were friends, and I felt so alive, indeed, in the sense of like I learned so much about their art and their culture and their music and we uh played music together drank beer together went on hikes like a lot of things that made me feel really physically connected to the land to storytelling to making art there's so much really highly you know highly trained and skilled musicians in that particular area there's a really amazing school for bluegrass and old-time music called Allegheny Echoes that happens in Pocahontas County so it's just a really like rich and connected region for for the arts and for music in particular So I think that sense of aliveness was like, it was very present. It was very in the moment. I felt like a lot of the time I spent with those guys, partly because I think their lives were really present, partly because of how hard they were working with their bodies every day. And also music, especially communal music, especially I think bluegrass music demands this kind of like present, like jam attitude. Bluegrass is a really collective kind of music. It's sort of tossed around from player to player in a, Way that demands like a lot of you'd be paying really close attention to everyone who's in the room. The people who I was friends with—that was a big part of their sort of stance in the world was like today, like surviving today, being present today, having fun today, um, being outside today. And I I felt you know really excited by that and learned a lot from it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's interesting, you know, in the in the book when you describe being together with those guys, you know, playing music at somebody's house or something. Like there are a couple interactions with women where it's mm-hmm. very clear that like they're they're not on the same page as you in terms of like what their kind of maybe role is or purpose is there. Um and yeah. and it and it's interesting to sort of see that um to kind of try to make that connection between somebody who's, who's already more of an adult. And then the the girls that you're working with, like, I'm thinking of the the one girl who's like, mm-hmm. you're, you make me feel stupid or something like that. Um, not that that was, Absolutely. I'm sure that wasn't indicative of every interaction. I'm sure there was a lot of empowerment also going on there. Um, but, but I, I think, real. I mean, yeah. like coming from, you know, being a, a woman raised there, I think, yeah, you very much, um, you know, you do get this messaging that's like I mean, and not I don't think that any of this is necessarily particular to Appalachia, but like, well this is this is what your life will probably look like. And this mm-hmm. is what's probably expected of you. And and mm-hmm. anything that you do beyond that I think is very much like an act of will sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I think so t- I mean, you would know better, but I think from my um understanding, like there was a sense of, you know, there just weren't that many stories about what a life would look like for a woman in this place that weren't go away or like be a mom and be sort of on the side of a lot of action of stuff. And I felt like just being a, Right. Yeah, being an adult or quasi-adult woman, you know, unmarried, unattached, with an education already, I was pretty weird. Yeah, in that sense, mm-hmm. which I, I tried to talk about in the book a little bit, just as, like, there's just, like, not a lot of places to live, <laughs> not a lot of places to rent. Like, right. You know, just the sort of stage of life of being between childhood and an established career, you just saw a lot more men in that stage of life um, than you saw women. Uh, and so I definitely was, like, trying to figure out all the time, like, what's appropriate for me to do or be um, or say in this space, because I was trying probably too much as I talked about in the book to be like sort of sensitive to not like chomping over different places or different kinds of cultures, being from elsewhere. But I think I was also at some point I was like, well, I don't want to just be someone's girlfriend, but I am, you know, in a relationship with this one guy now. And I don't want to be like just a youth poverty worker all the time but I also am that and just not knowing like how to be or what that goal was was an interesting thing that I think I learned and that I think a lot of other um, people both women and men uh in the in the county were like struggling with.
0: Yeah and and I wonder if you don't mind to read um a couple lines here to set up some stuff that I want to talk about, about, because I think, I think there are some really fascinating interrogations of gender in here and like kind of just gender expectations and gender norms. I mean, jumping off of everything we've kind of just been talking about. And, And there's a piece of true things that sets that up really well. Um, which is number 10, uh, Pocahontas County life demanded that women and girls be powerful in ways that the more urban places I've lived have not or have even categorically denied. The masculinity I saw in Pocahontas County also encouraged emotional and physical closeness between men in ways I have rarely seen elsewhere. And I mean, even, you know, just what we're talking about with, you know, women's expectations and and you think of, you know, Vicki and Nancy have, you know, it, it comes up in the testimony of these men, like, Oh, well, you know, they didn't shave their legs, or they were heavy set, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot kind of put on the way that they're not quote, unquote, you know, normally attractive women to these men. Um, And I would love to just hear about Mm -hmm. your experience kind of sifting through all of that. And I know that's a very open ended question. But, Mm -hmm. you know, well, starting with your own personal experience, When you were there, were you kind of picking up on all of this sort of in real time or was this stuff that really did start to cohere in your head, like working on the book, being away, tying it to this case? I
1: think it was a little bit of both, classic answer, in the sense that I think when I was there, I was navigating this weird space, as we've been discussing, of being a woman for whom there weren't a lot of like parallel women doing similar stuff. And then figuring out, right, like, was it true and cool to just be kind of like the woman friend of this group of guys? Was something gendered happening in that dynamic? Was I supposed to eventually, like, become a sexual being to this group? Or was I just a pal, like one of the guys, you know? And my own sort of feelings about, like, who I was and what role I played in that group would shift a lot and I did end up shifting when I, you know, did get into a relationship with one of them, and I felt kind of, like, that was very different, like, now I was, like, one of their girlfriends, which felt weird, but also accurate, so, like, that was tough, and also I'm a queer person, which I feel like is important, um, there's a couple of, like, reviews have been, like, why is it important that, like, you're gay or you're queer, and I was, like, well, I think it is important because I suppose I wasn't always visible as, like, a queer person because I was in a relationship with a man at the time. But I think, like, things about me, like, yeah, like not shaving my legs or um, I'm, like, fatter now than I was then, but certainly, like, being pretty open about body stuff and fatness and, like, I used, like, a diva cup and, like, talked about periods and things like that, which were very was very common in the, um like, feminist nonprofit I was working at. So there are lots of other women um also sort of modeling that behavior for me who are from the area to that extent. But I think like that sense of um there'd be some moments where I felt really shared values with these guys I was hanging out with or their friends uh or their girlfriends and then there'd be moments where it would, you know, say something that would make me feel like, oh, am I doing the wrong thing? Like am I too hairy? Am I too weird? Am I too something? Um we're certainly there and, and when I started to talk about queerness with people. I, I think that I was surprised by how many queer people there are actually in Pocahontas County, but I'm sure in all over West Virginia. And as I talked about in the book, you know, West Virginia has like the largest percentage uh, per capita of, of young people who identify as trans, which I think makes a lot of sense in, in ways that I have no scientific evidence to prove. Yeah. I have to confess, I wasn't aware of that statistic. Yeah. I mean, I just think that I suppose it shouldn't be surprising, but it, it was, I guess, to me and right. It, it has been, I think, since Books come out and people have asked about it, but yeah, it just feels like that place was, it was at the same time one of the most gender expansive and gender crossing and gender non normative places I think I've ever lived in the sense of the ways that working and being in a place that's in some ways difficult to live with, vis a vis like weather, land, trees falling, roads closing, stuff like that, that demands, you know, strength and resilience from people of all genders. And also like this really close knit. Community in which people have known each other and grown up with each other for many many years makes it so that it's more normal, I think, for men to hug and touch and um, hang out and play music, like a music uh, sort of group amongst a bunch of guys. Which was a thing I saw a lot there. It was a very intimate and like not quite erotic, but certainly like sensual experience of them paying really really close attention to each other's like fingers and hands and breathing and expression and all of that seems really like interesting and in some ways surprising to me and then also yeah there were these moments where I felt like gender was also policed in ways I wasn't totally like accustomed to and I did feel like I was kind of like a weird woman or like a failing at being the kind of woman that was wanted
0: yeah like there's um that passage where where one of one of the men in that group um uses a slur and you've, 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 you've reprimanded him and he's behaved himself, but then it comes out again, but he looks at you in this very way of like, oh shit, I'm in trouble now, you know, where it's kind of like, he's kind of trying to like, laugh it away. And it's sort of like, yeah, what do you do with those sorts of experiences? And um, this is not on the same level at all. But like, when I was in college in West Virginia, I worked for the college paper and I wrote op-eds about politics and it was, you know, the Bush years. And, and there was a a family friend who would always call me like, Oh, there's our little liberal, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, ha ha ha, wanting people to have rights and basic human respect,
1: you know? Totally. And I, right. That experience like totally resonates. And also, I think like, with that particular moment, it was like, it was a gay slur. And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not into that. That's not cool. And I think there were some moments of like, people being like but genuinely why like why is that hurtful and me being like well let me tell you why I think it's hurtful right and I felt like that was listened to you know to a great extent in a way that I was kind of like oh this is like a surprising and kind of cool interaction I think this definitely the sense of kind of like identity lines are there and people are aware of them and they have certain you know blind spots perhaps but also like in real time in a community where you like know everyone and like love everyone to some extent like you can't just like cancel someone because they're gay or because they're homophobic or like whatever it is um which is tough but yeah in terms of the the book like the historical parts about the guys there's just a very weird um sort of line that gets drawn I think a lot but that got drawn in this case between essentially like the women who died like fuckability and whether or not people would have murdered them which like relies on this very weird logic about like right how pretty you are equals how likely you are to get raped question mark which then also equals how likely you are to get murdered which right. there's like two leaps in there that make no sense um but that was the thing that kept playing out like a lot in the case was people being like well they weren't pretty so I wouldn't have murdered them and I'm like right. how did we get to that and that was difficult to read and but that stuff unfortunately did feel like probably a precursor like a ancestor mm-hmm. of some of the comments that I did hear there yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: um I want to jump back to something that you said um a few minutes ago were you saying that people have kind of been challenging the relevance of your queerness like in the book like since the books come out people have been like oh why were you writing about this
1: yeah it's been, I've been really like trying to be a good author that doesn't read their goodreads or amazon reviews or like sort of reactions from regular people who aren't book critics sure um <laughs> and i was doing pretty well i think but then um a friend of mine like dm'd me and was like hey like have you seen that the like top goodreads review is really homophobic and i was like oh. so then i looked and oh. it is um someone saying very much why is my queerness in the book like why is it relevant and it feels like complaining a bit about like how much the space or airtime my queerness gets in the book, which is funny to me because I feel like that's like, this is like the least queerness I've ever put in a project of mine ever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I could have written such a gayer book, but um, (laughs) it wasn't really the focus of this project. And, you know, I think there's maybe a a paragraph or three lines somewhere in the book about about gayness and yeah it just struck me as odd that um absolutely I'm sorry about that oh it's weird yeah she was kind of like what's the purpose of this and I and I want to be like well what's the purpose of like me being white or what's the purpose of like another one of my identity categories um
0: right like I'm I'm writing in part about my experience and that's central to my experience
1: yeah it's true so I don't know that was odd that was something I wasn't anticipating yeah yeah
0: Well, diving in a little bit more kind of nuts and bolts writing-wise, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. One thing that I absolutely was wondering while I was reading this was how you physically kept track of, like, because there are like a million men (laughs) in this story, and they all have kind of the same name, and it's just like... I would have been just, I would have had to devise some really serious organizational techniques. And I was very curious how you just kind of kept track of all of this information. Indeed.
1: It was challenging. I mean, I feel like this goes back to my twisty path to the book in general, which it is that, you know, I started as a fiction writer getting my degree in fiction writing um, at UVA, yada, yada. And I really like took very incremental dips into the truth that I was writing nonfiction books, but it took me sort of a while to submerge into the water. So at first I didn't have a great organizational system because I was like, well, these facts seem important, but I'm not writing a nonfiction book. Like that's ridiculous. And at first I thought I was writing a short story and then that quickly, you know, showed itself to be the wrong way to approach the material, I think, both ethically and on a craft. Level. And so I was like, okay. And so then I started trying to create some systems of organization. But I think like I mentioned earlier, I worked on the book for about four years before I had a contract for it. So during that time, it was really not clear to me, like, if it was going to come to anything, if it was ever going to be a book or be a project. So to be totally honest, I had to do a lot of back organizing once it was clear that we were going to actually try to, to sell the book for it to be real for and for it to be super you know factually accurate I had to go back and do a ton of organizing um like in the years 2016 and 2017 so don't do what I did (laughs) is what I'll say um (laughs) but then once I knew that that's what I was doing and it became imperative to keep everything organized I did use our friend Scrivener a lot of course um yeah which I really like because it allows you to manage all kinds of different media so I had by that time like I sat in the, like, county clerk's office for about eight to ten days and photographed 3,000 pages of trial transcripts. So I had, like, a ridiculous amount of individual JPEGs, and I had a ton of audio files from interviews I conducted, and I had uh, also eventually um, movie footage from the court TV, um, uh, televised court TV uh, footage of this trial, which was the first trial ever to be televised um, nationally. Uh, from West Virginia which feels important so I was trying to manage all that different types of media and I also really like that Scrivener allows you to have that split screen feature where you're working in one half of it and you're managing your material in the other half which is great and also you can move around tiny paragraphs or bits of information like uh, to your heart's content so I did a ton of putting all my notes in like individual Scrivener pages and then moving them back and forth So once I did sell the book, again, I'm trying to be super transparent with as many people as possible to have everyone understand how expensive it is to write a book like this. So,
0: Yeah, you had this great piece on the Marshall Project about that, which I'll put in the show notes, too. That was wild to me.
1: Wild. And I'm also working on a piece about the cost of fact checking and fact checkers and that system. But yeah, essentially, right, like it costs between $1 and $3 a page, depending on the state where you live, to get a trial transcript. And I got quotes for fact-checking between three and $20,000. I ended up paying about $7,000 for the fact-check and about $7,000 for the trial transcript. So that comes out of a writer's advance any kind of research expenses or fact-checking, which a lot of people elect not to do, but it felt really important in this case, partly because I had had such a rocky organizational start I wanted to like make sure that everything even from the very first stages of the book was, was accurate. The child transcript which I eventually went back and bought because it felt really helpful for the fact checker and also important to compensate the court reporter because if you read my article in the Marshall Project you know court reporters are not fairly paid so selling um, copies of child transcripts is actually like a part of their salary and then at that point the child transcript became kind of like a, a bit of like an index that I could check. So that was really helpful.
0: Can you talk about the kind of structural decisions you've made in the book? So in terms of, um, you know, you go through a pretty, you go pretty far through the beard storyline before this idea of this person who who you later do believe and and is generally received to believe committed the crimes even like kind of appears um what was your I imagine Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. a a tricky decision to make and sort of like when to incorporate that storyline into these two other storylines
1: yes totally very well put I struggled a lot with that because as we've been discussing yeah there are just there's multiple theories of this crime there's even multiple theories of like specific encounters like you know this guy comes into the police station the police officer says like one thing about what happens during that meeting the guy Jacob Beard says another I think in a, in a something of this nature that has so many unknowns and so many people who participated over a very long period of time there's just multiple truths and that became important for me essentially I was trying to take the reader on a journey of look how many truths there are rather than like a more traditional let me unfold a master narrative for you of something that is unequivocally the true story so I was always right which is an
0: illusion even when it happens exactly and I just
1: yeah I just tried to make every decision possible to like pull the curtain back and be like here I am the Wizard of Oz I am not a journalist who is God I love books you know, that can do that, you know, something like a Patrick Redden keeps like say nothing or David Graham. Um, Like those books are beautiful and, and do what they do so well, but that's just not who I am as a writer. Um, And like what I believe in, is in nonfiction. So I was essentially trying to mimic my own process of discovery and questioning and changing my mind in bringing the reader in. So yeah, we decided to start with the beard narrative because Jacob Beard, this local farmer, he's the guy who is tried and convicted for these crimes 13 years after the fact, and so he is the person that a lot of local people believe to these crimes and some people still think that, but he's sort of the one about whom there is the most narrative or story. There was a big uh, newspaper media boom in 1993 when he's tried for these crimes that's basically uh, telling the story of how terrible and violent he is and how he killed these women like for basically no reason based on this ideological um theory of like he was mad because he's a backwards hick and people from elsewhere were coming in and so he killed them for some amorphous idea and so that was the story that existed out there like something I try to talk about in the book too is like it's very human for us as people to gravitate towards stories that are really um rich and uh simple and compelling and away from stories that are random and unknowable and broken. And so the story of Jacob Beard was um this local guy from the place uh who was bad and who um, murdered these women because he was just like a bad masculine dude. That story was the one that had the greatest hold and the one that I started off believing and that I had to sort of debunk and then question that felt important to start with and then introduce um this other theory, which came later in my understanding of these events and also came later in a lot of the people who live in Pocahontas County's understanding of the events, if that makes sense, even though some of it was happening chronologically at the time, like parallel to each other.
0: Right. and And that's something that I think is such a, is such a richer reading experience than this kind of alternative that we're describing that, that the book is also very much about, I mean, of course, about the the idea of truth, which you are setting up right from the beginning. But, but, you know, I also really loved everything about, um, about the, the kind of narrative of trial law and the idea of the, the, like the, the real when you get into just like the real power of storytelling Mm. and like that we're telling a story about a story about a story and like you can't really find your way to like some kind of unshakable core story it's just like story upon it's stories all the way down
1: absolutely I love that stories all the way down that's the title of our (laughs) conversation yeah it just feels like that and I, I I feel like an alternative narrative of this book could be how many law students did I date in the writing of this book? And the answer is at least three. (laughs) And, um,
0: I feel like you could have
1: sold like some kind of women's magazine. I know. And the answer is like three law students (laughs) and, um, they let me borrow their textbooks, which is how I got to this fellow Stephen Levitt, who's really like the king of basically like what makes a good story at trial in a criminal trial and what he says is like yeah you can't really win a case without a story that people are gonna just love and feel attracted to and I think part of the problem with um Jacob Beard's trial is like the story was really compelling it was like men in our part of the world, like it was a West Virginia jury, West Virginia judge, you know, just, and the story was like men in our part of the world are bad and do bad things to women. And for no apparent reason, just from the fact that they're men and let you know, lock up this guy who we know is bad and kind of restore our, um, uprightness, like in our own community and in the world. And the defense's uh, like story was basically just like, it wasn't him, you know? And that's, um, Oftentimes we know, like, Janet Malcolm tells us in and, and the Journalist and the murder and all these things that a trial is a—it's really just a fight between two stories, like, which story is more compelling. It doesn't always jive um, with the evidence. It's not really always a question of what evidence uh, does the story, you know, better support, which is tough. It's a tough, like, pill to swallow for us as humans who think we're, like, really sophisticated.
0: Do you feel like um, now that... You know, with all of that in mind, and and how difficult it is to to accept stories that are more complicated, you know, in our like lizard brains. Like, do you feel like writing this book has kind of closed the chapter of this for you, or do you do you feel like you're still, are there threads you still kind of want to pick out, either you know, in your in your personal experience there, or the the case of the mm. the story of the case itself?
1: I feel like I followed the arc of what was really propelling the engines of this book for me to a pretty good completion point. Like, I have my opinion about who did the crime, but maybe more so, I understand that like, there are just some things that are never truly knowable, and I understand a lot more about why the stories that were told about this case were so compelling, why things got so messy. Why so many people were accused and incarcerated, and why so many people in this community were, their lives were either tanked or super negatively impacted, even if they weren't at the eye of the storm. You know, a lot of peripheral people, people who I would come to know, were carrying a lot of of trauma and pain um, from these events in ways that I just have a much better understanding of now. I will always feel in love with and connected with this community. I think this book has been received with very mixed results um I've talked a little bit about before like people some people feeling really seen and gravitating towards it and some other people feeling like why do we need this additional story told uh about this place and about these events and I think all those perspectives are super valid so I'm sure I'll be having conversations with people now about (laughs) this book (laughs) and people's feelings about it you know for many years I feel closure in the sense of we just can't ever really know and I feel kind of more at peace with like the the not knowing because I understand sort of how we got there a bit better
0: yeah it's it's tricky (laughs)
1: It's, it's an understatement
0: but yeah like everything everything that you just said about you know do we need this story and 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 when I started reading this kind of independent of this honestly I was already thinking about these ideas of like especially you know I I experienced this with Appalachia but I think you can extrapolate this very easily to to many experiences um identity experiences of like your stories can sometimes feel like they're only allowed to be told through pain um and and this idea of like people maybe are only interested mm-hmm. when they're when they're suffering when there's pain and suffering and and I mean I think that's a lot of the dead girl you know That's again. That's not new to Appalachia, but um, but I do think that there's. I'm not. I'm not putting this book in that bucket at all. I'm just (laughs) saying like these are these are things I'm thinking. These are things I was kind of already thinking about, and I think that. I understand. um, Yeah. I think that this does a real, you know, the, it's, it's maybe less that, like, Absolutely. I don't know, maybe that's our human nature. Maybe that's, and, you know, we can talk about like Ursula K. Le Guin's theory about, you know, conflict and narrative and like how suffering is like this integral part of like narrative arc. I don't, or, you know, she's uh, is arguing yeah. the opposite. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm getting off track. What I'm saying is, um, I think like, I think that something that this does really well is, it it harnesses the the power of attraction of that narrative, but then like uses that to explore what else is underneath it.
1: Mm, thank you. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think Ursula Le Guin is off track at all, because actually just last night, sitting in a lovely pizzeria craft beer place in Charleston, I was reading this book about food and foodways in Appalachia by Elizabeth Englehart, like that anthology, which I think you're in. I'm in, yeah, I am. Which was like, I was like, oh, that's so funny because I'm talking to her tomorrow. And the introduction is Elizabeth Englehart writing about Ursula K. Le Guin's theory of the carrier bag of fiction.
0: Exactly. And I
1: was like, oh my God, I aspire to that. Like, what I was trying to do in this book is make be just like a giant carrier bag of stuff. But I do also think that, like, there's a really great writer, Catherine Dunnable Moore, who, uh, from West Virginia and I think I wondered if you knew yes. her
0: I was like yeah she's got a no cat yeah yeah she's incredible yes. yeah
1: I tried to get her books to include in the back but she said she doesn't have titles for them yet and I was like ah, but um uh, <laughs> I love them and she uh talks about in her great Oxford American essay about the book of the dead right she says that she couldn't tell any more stories about West Virginia that are through the lens of pain and suffering right and I completely do like hear that and I think that's a valid and point to hold in mind I think that is maybe why some um, feeling of like why do we have to dwell on in this pain you know all over again and I I definitely hear that
0: yeah so this isn't a very this is a very abrupt ship but this is the question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations uh which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now
1: mm. Maybe it does look like a carrier bag. Like, I think I'm aspiring to work that is a little bit more um, of a bag of stuff hitting against each other than is, like, a straight line. And so I think um, it feels really satisfying. It's feeling really satisfying to me lately to write short fiction again. um, My, like, first love and first language, probably just in the sense of how compressed short fiction is um, and the ways that it doesn't necessarily like, uh, it's like if you took a snake and stuffed it up and put it inside a purse. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's what <laughs> feels the most satisfying to me is like when I feel like I've taken something that could be a snake and have stuffed it up and made it into something that someone could carry. Um, and just that, I think also image, Image-based writing has been feeling really creatively satisfying, like taking something that is a sort of snapshot or a particular sound or a particular moment, and starting from there, that's been feeling like really fun and satisfying lately in the tradition of Linda Bay, the great image-based cartoonist and fiction writing. Absolutely.
0: Oh, that's a great answer. Thank you. Well, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time today. Um, let me know if you're ever back in Pittsburgh.
1: Oh, I absolutely will. Yeah, thank you so much for um, your questions. I feel like it was a treat to talk with you in particular and with your experience being from Morgantown, and all that. And, and yeah, if you're ever in Philly, for sure, too, let me know. All right, will do. Thank you. Talk to you soon.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier, or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.